0: Oh, good morning, welcome to the Backyard Professor videos. I've started a a series of videos on biblical archaeology with the Asherah and some of the first temple Judaism theological ideas and the themes of the ancient deities and how archaeology is confirming Israel, just not in a way that the churches are familiar with it and then I've done basically an introductory video on the historical Jesus and some of the materials uh, of how they've covered the historical Jesus and I'm going to be doing much much more on that and uh, what I want to do today is share a theme an idea from one of my very favorite biblical scholars and classicists Dennis R. MacDonald. I've got his stack of books right here. I'm going to take some information from the Dionysian Gospel, the fourth Gospel, and Euripides, which is an extremely interesting concept. Uh, MacDonald is the great scholar of mimesis. That is, in antique times, uh, especially around the time of Jesus, The people, the Romans, the Latins, the Greeks, people were using ancient authors. Homer and Virgil were the two main big ones, of course. They weren't interested in innovating completely new creative ideas. They would take what they had, the Homeric epics, Virgil's classic text, the Aeneid, And they would imitate it, which is what the Aeneid is of the Odyssey and the Iliad from Homer. And they would present their own story. But they would either embellish characters, they would take a plot and change that plot to enhance their hero or even to enhance their bad guy. They would turn a victory from one story into a defeat of another, etc. This is called Mimesis. It was prevalent throughout the Mediterranean area in the days of Jesus. MacDonald has written many, many texts of which I will elaborate on. On this theme of the Gospels themselves, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and how they all have practiced mimesis from the classic Greeks. So we now have more sources that the gospel writers, we now know that they use. The ideas of Macdonald. I mean, you can see there are just thousands of pages of text here. Many, many different views. The Dionysian Gospel, I believe it was 2017... Fortress Press, Minneapolis, yeah, 2017. So this is relatively new. And without question, in my opinion, this is one of his very, very, very best texts on this subject. But before I start, I would like to share with you two uh, art portraits that I have done. They're digitally done. This one, this particular one that you're seeing right now, is of Dionysus and I painted this. uh, I love digital art so I painted this portrait and I will use this you know periodically throughout this presentation because number one it's fun to show off my own art but number two Dionysus is one of the big subjects of this video and then this next portrait that you're about to see that you're looking at here is my version of jesus this is my portrait of jesus as a mediterranean jew and i like to draw i love to paint Uh, i have discovered digital art a few years back and it's very enjoyable but since this subject is the gospel of john jesus dionysus i'm gonna share these a little bit off and on, among other pictures, maps, charts, and diagrams in this presentation. So first, on this video of Jesus and Dionysus, one thing we have to recognize that is extremely valuable, in my opinion, is where were the Gospels actually written? And so I did some research on this. None of them were written in Palestine. Or Jerusalem. And so, in a way, this kind of helps explain why there are various different approaches and views between the Gospels. Uh, John is claimed to have been written in Ephesus. His audience was of Hellenistic composition. So, really, this actually now we get why he uses Euripides' Bacchae as his basic mimesis to show the superiority over Dionysus. It also explains why John is so different from the other three synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, because Mark is claimed to have been written in Rome for a Gentile audience. Matthew wrote for a community of Greek-speaking Jewish Christians, probably in Syrian Antioch. And Luke is proposed to have been written in possibly Antioch. Uh, Another option is Asia Minor, like Ephesus or Smyrna. So this makes sense that there are different emphasis. Now, MacDonald has shown... uh, Let's see, which one is it? Yeah, this one. This one's a very, very fabulous text. Luke and Virgil. He has shown how Luke used imitation classic literature. He imitated classic literatures from Virgil. Excellent text. And then does the New Testament imitate Homer? Yes, it does. That's a little bit more in Acts. And then the Homeric epics in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, MacDonald shows extensively how much Mark utilized Homer's Iliad and Odyssey. And then the Gospels and Homer is his big one. Imitations of Greek epic in Mark and Luke Acts. And so, MacDonald has basically done a tremendous job of showing us how the Gospels were utilizing the classic literatures, which makes absolutely perfect sense. It really does. So let me share the themes of the Dionysian Gospel with John, with the recognition that John in Ephesus, it's very interesting how at just this period, and, you know, they say he was written around 100 AD, right? The Gospel of John. It is the latest Gospel. And formerly they used to say, well, it's the most Gnostic Gospel, because it really is quite different from Matthew, Mark, and Luke kind of a gospel standing on its own. And uh, one of the early church fathers, now we know, I mean, Helmut Kester in the ancient Christian gospels, his magnificent study of the gospels, he's shown like there's some 30 plus different gospels. Only four made the canon. Uh, And this was a symbolic gesture. Uh, It was based on number symbolism. One of the early church fathers said like there's the Four winds in the four corners of the earth. There are also four pillars of heaven, and therefore there are four pillars to the faith. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And that was the reason they were canonized. I mean, that, that, that's a pretty whimsical reason, but and yet, in a way, there's kind of a. I mean, you can understand that's actually kind of a cool uh, numerical symbolism, but has nothing to do with whether they are more valuable than some of the other gospels or not now that we found the Gnostic Nakammati materials with the Gospel of Thomas I, I mean and the gospel of Mary Magdalene Oh my goodness, that is an enormous... Um, the Gospel of Mary Magdalene. I'm showing off some of my gnostic materials to you while I'm talking. Yeah, The Resurrection of Mary Magdalene by Jane Schauber. The Gospel of Mary, Esther de Boer. Uh, Karen King, The Gospel of Mary Magdala. Uh, the The Secrets of Mary Magdalene. The, uh, the Gospel of Mary Magdalene by Leloup. Uh, Magdalene's Lost Legacy by Starbird. I mean, there is an enormous, and then the Pistis Sophia, of course, and the books of Yehu, there's an enormous amount of Gospels that just simply, uh, the the concretizers, I'll put it this way, the concretizers in early Christian history. And this was actually when uh the Jews were becoming Christian, but they were still Jewish as well. I mean, early Christianity is Judaism, more or less, just with a different twist and interpretation. In a general rule, that's how we, we should approach this, according to many scholars. And well, Petrament says Gnosticism was early Christianity. It was just a different interpretation within. Christianity, son. That's kind of an end. And Petremont is no slouch of a scholar. I'll be getting into those materials too soon. So this theme that there's only four Gospels is really, uh, it's interesting. Um, doesn't make a lot of sense, and yet in some respects it does. So we'll go with four for right now, but I don't feel like I'm stuck with only studying those four, nor in only believing those four. Just because an ancient council, under political pressure and duress, voted and said, yes, we accept this one. No, we don't like that one. No, we don't like that one. It doesn't say what we are comfortable with about Jesus. Therefore, we're not going to canonize it. And a whole bunch of these bishops got together raggly, scraggly, and voted on how many gospels to put in and which ones. I mean, it. the process was just ludicrous. And then Christianity, of course, got state-sponsored power and instead of being the persecuted, they became the persecutor and they completely murdered and wiped out and slaughtered everyone else who didn't think like them which is a pathetic way to exist and we still have that attitude and spirit today and we really shouldn't I say we I don't mean we us I mean as a general humanity and it's just stupid to not realize that there are numerous interpretations that are equally valid as anything any of the churches has ever put together. So, man, that's a long enough introduction. Let me get on to McDonald's uh, information and presentation because this is truly exquisite. The thing I love about McDonald the best, no joke, is not only does he help me scrutinize the Gospels more carefully, uh, read those stories with more care and compare and cross-check with each other, with current and former biblical scholarship. Absolutely, you've got to do that. But the other thing MacDonald does for me that I have come to greatly appreciate is he is instilling within me a love of the Greek, classic, epic material. Yes, uh, Euripides, Virgil, Homer, Aeschylus, Sophocles, the great classics. Uh, I never realized they were so powerful until I began reading MacDonald several, several years ago. And and uh, hats off to Richard Carrier in his book, The Historicity on the Historicity of Jesus. Uh, because it is through Carrier. I believe his book is 2014, something like that. Uh, that was when, it, it was through Carrier when I read that book and was just completely, well, part of it flabbergasted me, other part of it thrilled me, another part of it made me uh, just lose sleep. Fabulous book. He introduced me into the magnificent writings of Dennis R. MacDonald. And I've never looked back. I, I read McDonald all the time. This particular one is one of my very favorites of McDonald's. So let me get on with this. Let's go explore John in a fantastically wonderful way. Okay, I'm going to touch on a few of the highlights of the comparisons between the Gospel of John and the Dionysus cult theme from Ancient Greece. Uh, I'm not going to worry about telling you the page numbers. I'm just going to skip through. I'm skipping, and I've highlighted some things. So So a, a Johannine author supplemented the synoptics, and the idea here was to portray John as a rival of Dionysus. Interestingly, John being written in Ephesus, At that time, about 100 A.D., Ephesus had a huge influence in the Dionysian uh, cult at that time. So John, being in Ephesus, he wanted to show that as great, as magnificent as Dionysus was, one greater than he has shown up. And that's the point of John's Gospel from this interpretation. And I think that's remarkably interesting. I'm not going to give you every parallel. I mean, he he goes through dozens and dozens and dozens of them. I'm going to give you just a few highlights that make it unmistakably certain that this is pretty much what John has done. And it does help explain the Gospel much better. Now, this is why John's Jesus is so different than Matthew, Mark, and Luke's. Because his emphasis is different. Jesus is rivaling the main pagan deity in the Gospel of John. That's why Jesus is presented the way he is. MacDonald masterfully shows this. So, Courtney J.P. Friesen, gives a general comparison between Jesus and Dionysus. That is really interesting. Both Jesus and Dionysus are the offspring of a divine father and a human mother, which was subsequently suspected as a cover-up for illegitimacy. And there have been whole books written on that theme concerning Jesus, the illegitimacy of Jesus as well as Dionysus, interestingly enough. Both are from the east, and they transfer their cult into Greece as part of its universal expansion. Both bestow wine to their devotees, and they have wine as a sacred element in their ritual observances. Both have private cults, Both were known for close association with women devotees. And Rihanna Eisler's book, The Chalice and the Blade, I've got it here somewhere. Anyway, magnificent book, showing how Jesus was so close to women. His treatment of women was different than the culture that surrounded him. And that kind of helped set him apart. Yeah? Same with Dionysus. Very interesting. Both were subjects to violent deaths. And they subsequently both came back to life. By the middle of the second century, observations of such relationships are explicitly made and we would be later developed in various directions, of course. Now, a juxtaposition of Jesus with Dionysus here is invited in the Gospel of John, but not directly because... He was already familiar, as was his culture. People who read John's Gospel would grasp these parallels. The reason why these parallels are not understood today is because we haven't had the Dionysian ideas for millennia. They were stamped out as brutal, pagan, immoral, indecent, and so on and so forth, right? So we don't know hardly anything about it. Back in John's day, it was just common knowledge. So he didn't have to spell it out in his gospel. This is what makes MacDonald's treatment so intriguing, in my opinion. Because he brings it out very clearly for our benefit. Right? Now, John is credited with a dis. Distinctively Dionysic miracle in the wedding of Cana: the transformation of water into wine. In the Hellenistic world, there were many myths of Dionysus's miraculous production of wine. He was a god of wine, and thus, for a polytheistic Greek audience, a Dionysic re- resonance in Jesus's wine miracle. Would have been unmistakable. They would have got the point. Ooh, hey, he's doing it like Dionysus did when they read that miracle at Cana in the New Testament, or at least in John's Gospel. John's Gospel employs further Dionysic imagery when Jesus later declares, I am the true vine. Ego Ami e Ampelos e Alathini. I am the true vine. That was another major symbol of Dionysus. John's Jesus presents himself, not merely as a new Dionysus, but one who supplants and replaces him. So, scholarship has recognized this. MacDonald is picking up on the scholarship and making the details, the comparisons, very explicit, which is, makes his book so much more worth purchasing. true in my opinion heck I I purchased all his stuff He, he is so good and I hear he's writing another one which is really fantastic I hope he writes for the next 190 years well the Gospel of John bears a remarkable similarity in plot structure to Euripides' Bacchae in both books the protagonist is a god who dons flesh lives among mortals, and is rejected by his own people. Very interesting. This antagonist drives the plot in both works, but the outcomes are significantly and strategically different, and this is John's entire intention. The Bacchae is a tragedy that leaves its main characters either dead... Or devastated and culminates in the downfall of the Theban ruling family in the bitter ending, King Cadmus, who appeared earlier as a figure of piety through his belief in the God, he ends up complaining to Dionysus. And here's his complaint. It's not right that gods resemble mortals in their outrages. So he was explicitly calling into question the morality of Dionysus' vengeance. And you can read about that in the Bacchae. Whereas Dionysus, a god in the flesh, destroys and punishes unbelievers, the Jesus of the fourth gospel, get this, the Son of God, he offers eternal life very nifty little mimetic twist here, yeah. Euripides' violent depiction of Dionysus provides a contrast to John's Jesus as an altruistic savior of the world. So, Joanne A. Brandt's study merits mention my goal is to unmask the skilled artistry of the gospel, the John, designed to produce a compelling rendition of the story of Jesus who is capable of finding an audience in a world where Homeric epics and Greek tragedies were still read. The Johannian evangelist, not only Imitated Euripides, he expected his readers to esteem Jesus as greater than Dionysus. Imitations of the Bacchae suggest why the fourth gospel departs so dramatically from the synoptics. Whereas Mark focused on the unfolding of the messianic secret, and Matthew developed his story around the continuity of the Jewish tradition and the new revelation of Jesus. And while Luke focused on the emergence of the new religious movement and its eventual spread to the ends of the earth, the first Johannine evangelist crafted his plot. And what he did is he focused squarely on Jesus' heavenly origin, Jesus as the Logos, and Ho Logos. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. And he also focused and and crafted his story with the ensuing conflict between acceptance and rejection of his overtly expressed divine identity, Jesus' divine identity. So, this resembles Euripides' depiction of Dionysus. The fourth gospel begins by identifying its protagonist as a god. In the beginning was the Logos, and the Logos was with God, and the Logos was God. This one at the beginning was with God. Everything came into being through him, and without him nothing came into being. What came into being through him was life, and the life was the light of humans. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. So the Bacchae now begins with the god declaring his identity. I, the child of Zeus, Dionysus says, have come to the land of Thebes. Dionysus, whom Simile, daughter of Cadmus, once bore induced to do so by a lightning bolt after having changed myself into human form from that of a god the theul well like dionysus the child of zeus on mount olympus the logos was a god a theos with god later called his father zeus was not only dionysus's father but also his own birth mother now And this is the most remarkable part of this Greek God. He's the only God we know of that went through this double birth. Very interesting. And my speculation is, perhaps this is why John, uh, why he tried to identify Jesus with the Logos, uh, which was a very, uh, I'll do some more videos on the Logos. I've done some research on it. The Logos is a very, very amazing uh, philosophic, concept. It's actually a numerical concept involving ratio. Uh, It it goes real deep. (laughs) That's the deep end. That's part of the stake. (laughs) Anyway, after slaying Semele with lightning for boasting that she had slept with the king of the gods, Zeus then rescued the fetus. He sewed it into his thigh and brought it to term. See, Dionysus had a double birth from both a father and a mother. Very interesting here. So, quite unexpectedly, the Gospel of John shifts attention from the light to the sole witness of that light. There was a person sent from God whose name was John. This one came as a witness to bear witness about the light, so that all might believe through him. And he was not the light, but he was to bear witness about the light. So he's going through the uh, first chapter of John. Well, surely it's not by accident here that early in his opening speech, Dionysus similarly singles out Cadmus, his grandfather, for praise. I praise Cadmus, who established this plot untrodden. A sacred precinct for his daughter with clustering foliage of the grapevine. I myself have shrouded it. Later in the Gospel, the Baptist again will play the role of Cadmus. Well, after praising John, the prologue returns to extolling the light itself. The true light that enlightens every person was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world came into being through him, and the world did not know him. This is the Gospel of John, right? He came to his own uh, regions, the ta, or the dia, he came to his own regions and to his own people, and they did not receive him. But as many as received him, to him, or to them, he gave authority to become children of God to those who believe in his name. Now, that's the Gospel of John. Dionysus disguised himself as a mortal in order to punish Thebes, his birthplace, and his mother's family. Since my mother's sisters, with whom one might least expect, were saying that Dionysus was not born of Zeus but that Semele had been seduced by some mortal man, and that she had attributed to Zeus her own sexual sin. See, the Logos and Dionysus, they both came to their own regions, and their own people did not receive them. In the prologue, the Logos' own people are those whom he had created, but in the light of the gospel as a whole, one might take them to be fellow Jews. In which case, the parallels with the Bacchae would be closer insofar as those who rejected Dionysus were his own family and other citizens of his own city, Thebes. The Logos assumes a human body. So he's continuing through the Gospel of John, chapter 1, he says, And the Logos became flesh and pitched tent among us, and we observed his glory, glory of the one-of-a-kind child from the Father, full of grace and truth, for we all have received of his fullness gift after gift. So in his opening speech back to Dionysus, he declared that he charged into this mortal appearance in order to reveal his power to unbelieving Thebans and to punish Pentheus, the king. For this reason, I will show him that I am a god. The Logos, by contrast, became flesh in order to offer grace and truth. We all have received of his fullness gift after gift. Isn't that interesting how John is using mimesis from Euripides' Bacchae and then changing it. That's a perfect example of the mimetic art from antiquity. This is wonderful. The word translated here as fulmus is pleroma, which of course the Gnostics utilize constantly, which has to carry, which was to carry heavy theological freight in later Christian discourse. So, It only appears here in John's literature, and it symbolizes the Logos as a vessel full of gift after gift after gift. I mean, that's a great description of the Pleroma. John really did a great job here. But Dionysus, too, was a donor god, and he was a source of wealth. Yeah, so of course he was also associated with full craters and wine cups because that is what he offered so many people, gifts after gifts. Very interesting, isn't it? Now, John one eighteen, I love how uh, MacDonald translates this. this. This was spectacular. No one ever has seen God, a one-of-a-kind God, the one in the lap. Of the Father that one revealed him. Boy, that is really interesting. So, twice in the prologue in John, the Gospel of John, one finds the word monogamous at verse 14 and 18, which I have translated as one of a kind. The author employed it to exclude the possibility that God had other such offspring, such as Dionysus, whom the Bacchae twice calls Zeus's offspring. Yeah. Dios geno gonos. I translated the word "corpus" as lap in the phrase the one in the lap of the father. It is the region of the body extending from the breast to the legs, especially when a person is in a seated position, a bosom or a lap. One will recall that after Zeus destroyed Semele, he sewed the fetus into his thigh, which served as a womb, according to the Bacchae. So Dionysus and Jesus both have an unusually intimate bond with their divine fathers. And this is so remarkable how that's brought out through the Greek in the Gospel. Look that up, that Colpus, Very interesting. I looked it up in the Little Scott and also in the Bauer Gingrich, Danker uh, Lexicon of the New Testament. The opening speech of Dionysus and the prologue of the Gospel share a brilliant literary strategy admirably described by Brandt. The revelation of the prologue stand outside the knowledge of the actors or participants in that action. The audience then joins in a sort of a collusion with the narrator by sharing privileged knowledge and transcending the finite reality of normal human experience to view what normally cannot be seen, the workings on the cosmic order. The vantage point or the discrepant awareness between fictional characters and the audience afforded by the prologue. This allows the audience to enjoy the irony offered by the action of the drama. Very interesting. Howard W. Atridge suggests that the quasi-poetic form of John's prologue is not a secondary or a casual addition to the gospel. It belongs right where it sits, at the beginning of the complex gospel. Unlike any of the other gospels, the fourth gospel begins as a drama. Surely, it is not by accident. Now, he's moving through the Gospel of John. He's in chapter 2 here. That Jesus' first miracle in the Gospel of John was a Dionysian feast. And on the third day, a wedding took place in Cana of Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus and his disciples, too, were invited to the wedding. Uh, There are some scholars who actually have indicated that this is Jesus' own wedding. It's very interesting. And I mean, I mean, uh, there's been four or five different studies that I have seen discussing this, that's not put in this gospel. Very interesting. And when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Uh, and if you want, I'll, I'll explore that in some videos too about Jesus being married. Very interesting uh, Non-canonical tradition. (laughs) Hey, the more you learn, the more you realize you don't know. That's how it works. And Jesus said to her, What to me and to you, woman? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Six stone water jars were standing there for the purification of the Jews, each containing two or three liquid measures. Jesus told them, fill the jars with water, and they filled them to the brim. And he said to them, now draw it out and take it to the chief steward. And they took it. And when the chief steward tasted it, the water had become wine, and he did not know where it came from. The servants who had drawn it knew, and the chief steward called the bridegroom, and told him, everyone first presents the good wine, and then, when people are drunk, the inferior, but you have reserved the good wine until now. Jesus did this beginning of his signs in Cana of Galilee, and revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. Notice the difference here with the Gospel of John. John has several signs that Jesus did in order to demonstrate his glory. And this is one of the chief differences between uh, the Gospel of John and the three synoptics. Mark even has the secret Messiah. Jesus just wouldn't do anything. He, he forbade everyone to describe who he was and all that noise. Right In John, jesus demonstrates who he is very interesting difference well jesus not only turns the water into wine he produced over a hundred gallons of it and of superior vintage he not only produces a massive amount of vin de marquis but he does so after the guests are smashed. <laughs> I love how he put that, huh? The changing of water into wine was Dionysus's signature miracle. According to Rudolf Boltmann, every year on the day of the Dionysian Feast, the temple springs in Andros and Teos were said to have poured out wine instead of water. In Elise, on the eve of the Feast, three empty jars were set up in the temple, and they were found to be full of wine on the next morning. So Euripides twice mentions the God's miraculous production of wine in the Bacchae. The first is this, the ground flows with milk, flows with wine. Here is the second. One of them took a thyrsus and struck a rock, from which gushed a wet spurt of water Another woman struck the fennel wand into a plot of earth, and on that spot the god produced a fountain of wine. Had you been there, the god you now censor, you would approach with prayers on seeing such things. Well, according to Boltman, now Dionysus' changing water into wine was an epiphany celebrated at the Dionysian feast. That is on the night of the 5th to the 6th of January. Now, the early church saw the feast of Christ's baptism as his epiphany, and they celebrated on the 6th of January. Equally, it held that the 6th of January was the date of the marriage at Cana, as narrated in John 2 1 through 11. Really remarkable, isn't it? (laughs) Jesus' first miracle in Mark was an exorcism at which a demon recognized him as the Holy One of God. The exorcism produced astonishment. Well, the Gospel of John author apparently substituted the changing of water into wine for Mark's exorcism. And in favor of this transformation are similarities in what Mark's demon says to Jesus and what John's Jesus says to his mother. Mark says, What to us and to you, Jesus of Nazareth? Whereas John said to his mother, What to me and to you, woman? The narrator points out That Jesus did this, the beginning of his signs, in Cana of Galilee, and revealed his glory thereby, and his disciples believed in him. The first revelation of Jesus' glory was an abundance of fine wine. Furthermore, the Cana miracle anticipates Jesus' death, insofar as... 2 verse 4 is the first occurrence of the expression, His hour had not yet come. Jesus' hour is going to be his death and his glorification. Well, one might note that in the Acts of the Apostles, the first public miracle is xenolalia, that is, the speaking in foreign languages, which some onlookers interpreted as a symptom of drunkenness. Several modern interpreters have heard in Acts 2 echoes of Pantheus' accusations of manab intoxication in the Bacchae. By making Jesus' first miracle the production of wine, the, John, the Gospel of John notifies the reader now that Jesus will rival Dionysus. Michael Laban admirably emphasizes its significance not only for the Gospel, but for the understanding of the development of the entire Johannine corpus. By adopting the Dionysian epiphany motifs, It was feasible to convey the God being in a way that the human side only virtually adhered to the miracle worker. The Dionysian modus provided the possibility to tell the problem of Jesus' humanity in such a way that the Revealer manifested himself in human form. And this is what the God Dionysus also did. According to this background, John 2, 1-13 is to be read as an epiphany miracle. The supernatural, miraculous transformation denotes the epiphany of Jesus according to the pattern of Dionysus. The juxtaposition of Jesus and Dionysus depicts Jesus as a God. This is the most remarkable part of his book, uh, because I had come to this conclusion myself in my own separate study before I even discovered this book, The Dionysian Gospel. I was studying a, a classicist, Jan Cott, his book, The Eating of the Gods, and I began to study the theme that McDonald here presents. So yes, he scooped me, but it was really fun for me to realize that I had come to the same conclusion as the scholarship before I became acquainted with the scholarship in the Gospel of John. Uh, So this really touched me personally. Okay, John 6, 53 through 66. Eating the flesh of the Son of God. If my reconstruction of the Dionysian Gospel is correct, what immediately followed Jesus' declaration that he was the bread of life was his explanation why the one who comes to me will never hunger and one who believes in me will never thirst. Okay. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. The one who chews my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. The one chewing my flesh and drinking my blood abides in me and I in him. The one chewing this bread will live forever. Then, when many of his disciples heard this, they said, This saying is hard. Who can listen to it? From this point on, many of his own disciples went back, and they no longer traveled with him. Wow. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right? Were you comfortable when I read that translation from the actual Greek as opposed to the English translations that you've been reading in your Bible? Because that translation is more accurate. Now, this is a remarkable idea here. This grotesque passage departs significantly from the Eucharistic passage in 1 Corinthians and the Synoptic Gospels. In those texts, the elements are metaphorical. The breaking of bread symbolizes the breaking of Jesus' body, and the drinking of the wine symbolizes the new covenant sealed in his blood. Yada, yada, yada. 1 Corinthians 11.25. The participants perform these actions in remembrance of Jesus. And the rite symbolizes a legal contract binding the drinker of the wine slash blood into a new relationship with God. In John's Bread of Life discourse, however, this is different. Another way that John's Gospel differs from the synoptics because John is trying to emphasize that what we have here is the real Dionysus, the true Dionysus. The one you Ephesians, where John was written, have been following for centuries, the Greek Dionysus, That's the wrong one. Here's how John differs so spectacularly. Here's what he says. There is no Passover in the Gospel of John now. There is no Passover. There's no inner room. There's no ritual setting. There's no meal. There's no loaf of bread being broken for anyone. There's no cup to drink. And there's no wine at all. There's no mention of a substitutionary death no new covenant, and there's nothing to remember. The setting is outdoors during the day before a large and a mixed multitude of outsiders and disciples in the midst of a difficult controversy in which Jesus seems to offend purposely as many people as he can possibly offend That's how the Gospel of John presents this. That should wake us up. If you're comparing the Gospels, you should sit bold upright and take notice of what's going on here. I think MacDonald has it. Here is what is going on here. The Gospel of John creates a radically new soteriology a new means of salvation. That's what soteriology means. The idea of how do we gain salvation. Soteriology. So, what he says is now, now this Gospel of John says that by eating, chewing, Jesus' flesh, the sarex, in the Greek, and drinking his blood, the hyma, in the Greek, his followers will gain eternal life. Well, these two motives are distinctive to this gospel and they appear nowhere else in the entire New Testament. They point to Dionysian cult imagery, however. Specifically, the eating of the flesh and blood of the God and the immortality that initiates gain by such an activity. A song of Euripides' menads refers to this rite as the sheer joy of eating raw flesh. The cult of Dionysus famously involved two related rites, Sparognos and Homophagia. The first is sporogmos means dismembering. One was ripping apart of living beasts in the Bacchae. The second is eating raw flesh. This was the placing of the flesh and the bleeding meat to the lips, which some ancient interpreters took to be a reenactment of the eating of the young Dionysus by the Titans. The participant celebrated Dionysus as one who had survived death and thus granted immortality as the Lord of Souls. This symbolic act brought union with Dionysus, Dionysus within the celebrant, who granted eternal life. Well, this mystical union is more or less essentially what it's talking about, right? This is not articulated in the Bacchae. Indeed there, the god refuses to disclose the sacred rites to Pentheus or to the audience. But in the fragments of another tragedy now, the Cretans, the Chorus speaking as one refer to Omophagia and their identification with the god. I became an initiate of Idean Zeus and a herdsman of night-roaming Zagreus. This is an epithet for Dionysus. Performing his feasts of raw flesh, having been purified, notice the feast purifies the person, I was called Bacchus, the very name of the god. By consuming the animal's raw flesh along with wine, both of which represent the deity now, Jesus' sacrament. This, this is in the Buckeye, man. The followers shared in their vital forces of their God. They substantially ingested the God. And that's what I found in Jan Kott's book, The Eating of the Gods, in his analysis of the Bacchi. That was the idea of the sacrament. They become deified by eating the God. Now, this is a hard doctrine, man. <laughs> this is really heavy stuff. Yeah. So, reading John 6, 56-58, which contains strikingly peculiar and graphic vocabulary, in light of these traditions, proves to be elusive of these motives. Whoever chews Jesus' flesh and drinks his blood and therein demonstrates the belief in Jesus is not just saying, Oh, yea, Lord, I believe in you. Really? Well, then eat the God. Prove it. Then they are said to attain eternal life. And this is from Jesus himself. (laughs) You know, oh wow. The illusions of Theophagy, as known from Dionysian tradition, may well function as a means of reasserting to believers that Jesus is present among them, even within them now, and provides life for them, even after his own death. I'm I'm going (sighs) to... The, the, the deliberate emphasis is on the reality of the physical eating. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's the deepest intimacy with God that the scriptures have ever put forth. It, it, it is astonishing. And it's supposed to be. That's the idea. But it takes after the Dionysian idea. Now, let's move on. I'm going to skip a bunch of stuff. I'm running out of time. I don't mean to. But what a fascinating topic. The true grapevine. Now we're in John 13 and 14 and 15, right? Before the feast of the Passover, because Jesus knew that his hour had come to be translated from this world to his Father, he said, Children, I'm still with you, and for a short time. You will seek me, but where I am going, you are unable to. Simon Peter said to him, Where are you going, Lord? Why am I not able to follow you now? I would lay down my life for you. And Jesus replies, Will you lay down your life for me, Peter? Truly, truly, I say to you, the cock will not crow before you deny me three times. And where I am going, you know the way. I am the way, the truth the life. Now doesn't that seem more significant to you now that you've heard about the mimesis of taking the Dionysian way of eating the God and how it turned it to Christ. Now when he says, I am the way, the truth, the life, kind of adds a dimension, doesn't it? Arise, let's leave here. I am the true grapevine, and my Father is the farmer. He chops off every branch on me that does not bear fruit, and he prunes every branch that bears fruit so that it bears more fruit. Now, and that's typical of a vine, of an olive tree especially. You trim it to make it grow. Abide in me, Jesus says, as I abide in you. Notice how this has changed the nuance of what Jesus now says. <laughs> you see this in a uh, a whole other dimension now. Isn't that interesting? It's really interesting. Just as the branch is not able to bear fruit on its own unless it remains on the grapevine, so you cannot bear fruit unless you remain. In me. So, grapes and grapevines. These were distinctive Dionysian markers. No question about it. The Homeric hymns to Dionysus itself presents the following as the God's initial manifestation of his identity. And at once, along the top of the sail spread a grape vine, an Ampelos is how the Greek puts it, in both directions. Lucian presents a tongue-in-cheek adventure in which he comes upon a river of wine that issued from many huge grape vines. Ampelous, the plural. This miraculous abundance of wine is called the signs. tasimia yeah. Of Dionysius' visit to the spot long before. Well, although Dionysius is the god of the grapevine and viniculture, Jesus is the true grapevine, e ampelos e alathini, And so, Jesus is superior. To Dionysus. Because of this, his disciples ought to abide in him, is the message here. The organic description of this abiding creates a heightened level of vividness to the grapevine metaphor, where the disciples are branches that produce grapes, if healthy, sure. And connected to the true grapevine. When Jesus claims, I am the true vine, the allusion to Dionysus, the false vine, we would say, right? It was obvious for any reader in John's day when they read his gospel. Jesus' first miracle was changing water into wine. And it was then that he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. So surely it's not by accident that in his final words to his disciples he declares himself to be the true grapevine. Even after his death, the vine is going to provide spiritual grapes for them if his followers remain connected to him. The changing of water into wine as the first of Jesus' miracle alerts the reader to view him as Dionysian, as does his last speech to his disciples, I am the true grapevine. Only in the fourth gospel does one read that one must eat Jesus' flesh and drink his blood to obtain eternal life, and this evokes similar claims for Dionysian homophagia. The mimetic indebtedness to the Bacchae would largely explain why the fourth Gospel differs so dramatically from the other three. The difference issues not from deviating oral traditions of the life and the teachings of Jesus, but from imitations of Euripides. Because the other Gospels didn't use Euripides. Mark emphasized his mimetic discourses based on Homer, and Luke based his mimetic approach to Jesus based on Virgil and those stories. John emphasizes the Euripides idea. The evangelist notified his readers that Jesus was a rival to Dionysus insofar as he was the true grapevine, whereas Dionysus took human form to punish Thebes. The Logos took human form to offer life to those who received him. Euripides' story, after all, is a tragedy the evangelist's story came to be called the good news according to John. So that's what I wanted to share. And and there's many, many, many more. He actually goes through the entire gospel of John in this book showing the Euripides uh, parallels. I love studies like this that give us uh, new perspectives you know i I, i've said before when you change your attitude you change your life and you know no joke that can work both directions man positive or negative right so when you when you approach a text that we're so familiar with i mean how many times have we read the gospels you know in church in sunday school uh We've had our own little study groups and so on and so forth through the years and we keep repeating the same old interpretations because, of course, those are based upon what we learned in church. (laughs) Right? The pure value, the beauty, the enhancement that we receive through biblical scholarship is really delightful, in my opinion. MacDonald's books on Matthew, and Mark, and Luke, and Homer, and Virgil, now John, and Euripides, uh, they add so much more to this. The dimensions go deeper and broader, and you can... If you'll let yourself, when you, when you immerse yourself into this, and me, I I'm getting the, the Loeb edition of the Greek classics. I've got the Greek classics up behind me somewhere in the bookshelf, of all of the Greeks, and it's so much fun to open them up, Homer and Virgil and all that, with MacDonald, and read, the materials in their Greek and their Latin, along with the English translation, and then compare them with the Greek of the Gospels, with the translations of the Gospels, and see the ideas. And of course, I mean, you know, let's keep this on the real lowdown, right? Not all of uh, McDonald's parallels are so total super strong, you know. They're not really super fantastic, excellent, and obviously this is true. No, MacDonald is approaching this as a legitimate scholarly enterprise that needs looking into. Some of his materials, some of his parallels, really don't amount to a lot, I thought. On the other hand, some of his parallels where the exact and unique wording in the Gospels, in the Greek, with the Homeric epics or Virgil, in the Greek and Latin. Oh, man. You guys, some of some of these parallels just leave you tingling, man. I get goose pimples just thinking about them. They're fantastic. So, Dennis MacDonald. Uh, well worth looking into, the, uh, the the Greek classics, well worth looking into. I mean, look, we've got the, uh, w- we have received the heritage of the scholarship on the Eleusinian mysteries. Now, the ancients took their mysteries pretty doggone seriously, <laughs> right? Yeah, I mean, they really didn't say a lot. Uh, that's why we're still struggling to comprehend them. Right now, I'm doing some research in the, uh, the Mithras liturgy that I'm going to give to a colloquium of scholars in January. And then, excuse me, then I will present videos on this, uh, this Mithras liturgy. And <sighs> Mithraism was based on art, not uh, written materials. Right? So, this is, this is a case where we have to interpret the art, yeah? And I mean, you've got the David Ulances, and you've got the Reitzenssteins, and you have the Myers, and you have the Betzes, who translate the Greek Mithras liturgy, etc. So, in order to get our bearings on this thing out of the Greek Magical papyri we have to compare various approaches in the various mysteries, the Kabiroi, uh, the Eleusinian mysteries, the early Christian mysteries, and actually, truly, the, the Jewish mysteries of the Kabbalah and First Temple Judaism. I mean, all of this stuff comes into play, man. And so in order to try to grasp the mindset of the ancients in their most spiritual moments. I mean, even the, the Kaaba mysteries of Islam. And what's the idea? The mysteries from the Egyptians, the Isis mysteries. The relationship of the pyramids in the Egyptian materials. The kings circumambulating around the pyramids have terrific parallels with the circumambulation around the Kaaba in Islam, the the journey, the pilgrimage to the Holy Spot, yeah? Well, that circumambulation is in the Mithras Mysteries, I've discovered. <laughs> I mean, it, wow, the parallels here are really interesting. Number symbolism parallels, just like he finds in the Gospels in relation to some of the Greek classic materials. There's overlap everywhere, not by way of causation, not by way of, it is a syncretistic, it's a meshing together of various ideas and all, but just the ancient mindset of what is man's relationship to the gods and what is man's relationship to the cosmos that relationship to them was very real. Today in our modern skeptical society, we don't go there so much and we are the losers for not doing so. In my opinion, that's just that's just me and I and I'm I'm bringing up a boatload more materials for you. Not only from the New Testament, the Old Testament, not not just the Bible, but the the classic materials too. We have a long way to go, and we've got a lot of very interesting, cool, fascinating stuff. The Dream of Scipio by Cicero. Now, I've heard this pronounced both ways. I don't know. I'm not a classicist. Cicero or Kickero. I'm not quite sure how it's pronounced. Maybe somebody can tell me in the comments. But Even this uh, Macrobius's commentary on the dream of Scipio. That comes into play, believe it or not, with the Mithras liturgy. And it comes all the way up into the Renaissance. No joke. I've got some great materials from, the, uh, from that text that Joseph Campbell edited on the mysteries. One of the greatest texts I've ever read. I just finished reading it yesterday. Again. And took careful notes because this... I want to find some uh, background for this uh, Mithras liturgy, and it's it's fantastic. <laughs> it just mind-boggles you. All of the Apocrypha, the pseudo-pseudepigrapha. Hey, what about the books of Enoch? The Ascension texts. Is it either 2nd or 4th Baruch? Uh, Ezra. Fantastic materials coming out that, that I'm going to try to Put together and share some more new interesting stuff for you. The idea here, look, the idea here is, um, keep going. We, we want to refresh our minds, enhance our spirituality, enjoy our lives. I mean, we're here on this earth right now. Let's enjoy the beauty of the earth with our eyes. You know, the epoptea. That's the Greek word for true seer. What makes a seer a seer is having the ascension into the heavenly visions and realms. Well, these mysteries show us how to do that. It's not just that the ancients can do it, we can too. We can keep tapped in, so to speak, of the spirituality of the universe. If that is what you feel you're needing, then there are ways to do that. And so we've got some wonderful information coming out now. I'm going to be sharing dozens of videos on this stuff. So anyway, I've rambled on long enough, but just to let you know, really, truly, there are some truly magnificent, significant things coming down the pipeline. There's some new, fresh scholarship, such as McDonald, that shows us the old Elaine Payles. Oh, I just dropped her on her head. <coughs> well, through her book, anyway. <laughs> uh, on her book, Beyond Belief, the comparison of the Gospel of John with the Gospel of Thomas. <laughs> There's some fantastic new stuff coming out, you guys, that shows that our reading and studying of the ancient scriptures does not have to be a bore. No, we can, we can approach this not in the spirit of rebellion or apostasy. I mean, some are going to say, well, that's not what my church teaches, therefore you're wrong. You know, you can't help people like that. So what? We're going to throw out more information, more ideas, more interpretations, new, fresh approaches that breathe life back into the old staleness that, unfortunately, religion has become. It doesn't have to be that way. It does not have to be that way. I I don't buy that, right? So, anyway, now I'm rambling. i got to quit. So, thank you for watching my Backyard Professor videos. I've got a lot more coming down the pike. I'm not kidding. Uh... So, in the meantime, remember, do good, be well, have fun, make lots of friends, be happy, and don't forget your eyesight. The world is a beautiful place. I'm not even kidding. Really, truly. Look again, and this time, become an epoptea. Really see the wiggles of the world. Man, it'll blow you away. It's awesome. So, I will see you in the next Backyard Professor videos.